Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, a history of British comedy with David Stubbs and his new book, Different Times. David Stubbs is a British author and music journalist. Alongside Simon Reynolds, he was one of the co-founders of the Oxford magazine Monitor before going on to join the staff at Melody Maker. He later worked for NME, Uncut and Box, as well as The Wire. His work has appeared in The Times, Sunday Times, Spin, Guardian, Quietus and GQ. He's written a number of books, including Fear of Music, Why People Get Rothko But Don't Get Stockhausen, Future Days, Krautrock and the Building of Modern Germany, and Mars by 1980, The Story of Electronic Music, all of which I think we've spoken about before on Little Atoms. And today we're here to talk about David's new book, which is Different Times, A History of British Comedy. David, welcome back to Little Atoms. Hi, lovely to be on again. I guess, first of all, why why now for this book? Why did you think this was the right time for a history of comedy? Yeah, well, I guess there are a couple of things, really. I mean, you know, you've read out my <laughs> resume there. Uh, as you can tell, my background is in music journalism. And I guess the kind of books that I'd kind of previously written had brought that kind of perspective, you know, to bear, really, that sensibility, I should say. And I think, you know, as a lover of comedy, I perhaps always wanted to apply the same sort of thing to comedy, really. You know, there's a sense that um, various reasons. One, I think that this perhaps sort of died. There's a sense that perhaps the British people are a bit overdetermined by their sense of humour, and that's why I commenced with this whole thing about Boris Johnson. You know, and I kind of wanted to look a little bit at that, but also in a sense, you know, about the history. I mean, different times. Clearly, it's a pun. It's 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 obviously it covers a great you know great range. You know, historically, you know, from Charlie Chaplin right through to the present day. But it's also different times, and like you know, when you get that kind of like moments when you see some dodgy old seventies sitcom, and they were all different times, weren't they? You know, so it was, that, it, it was really very much kind of looking at that. It was like a sort of you know, so it's almost like a history. It's a history of various things. It's not just like you know the development of British comedy and the way it's reflected like British social circumstances and character and what have you. But it's you know a history of like inclusivity, you know, for example. And it also comes at a time where, you know, it so happens that um, culture wars are being raged and, you know, there are attempts to sort of drag comedy into that. So it was various things along those lines. You just mentioned Boris Johnson. You start off the book with a little sketch about him. So tell us what that's about. Well, essentially, it's a kind of a preamble. It's almost like the way that Boris Johnson was constructed and the way that he was kind of launched onto the world by Have I Got News For You. And it was at a time, I think, when... 
the Conservative Party were probably considered to be almost an extinct beast, really. And it seemed like there was no harm in having Boris Johnson on him doing his kind of slightly kind of thing. And he's actually kind of like comically self-deprecating and actually quite good as a comedian and could have gone down that way. He could have been a Jack Whitehouse or something like that. And at the time, and I think a lot of people, respectively, people like John can go look back and they just think that, like, in a sense of I've got news for you, we're responsible for the creation of Boris Johnson, therefore to inflict him on the country and all the consequent misery that created. I don't quite go that far because I think at the time I laughed as well. And I think at the time the assumption was that the Tories were absolutely dead in water force. They appeared to have no possible future and certainly not one involving a kind of a buffer like Boris Johnson. Unfortunately, there was this kind of deep cunning at work and deep sort of ambition at work in him. And I think he you know, compared to almost like a kind of build a bear project, really. And you just see the kind of reaction of British you know, people once he'd been on that show. And it was like, oh, was it? Come on. You know, the idea that somehow this person of all people was a man of the people. But it was the idea that he ultimately there was a sense that he was elected for a laugh. And I think that one of the kind of perhaps the worst and most sort of tragic manifestations of the British sense of humour and our sense that, no, you have to laugh, don't you? No, you don't have to laugh. You know, other countries can get rid of their monarchies. They establish republics and they kind of become mature democracies. And so, you know, that was perhaps just one particular huge example of the way that, like, you know, perhaps British people are overdetermined by, well, perhaps a slightly mediocre in this (laughs) sense of humour. So you start the book off proper with a look at two... British comedians, but comedians that had to leave Britain to mm. actually become yeah. famous, Charlie Chaplin and uh, Stan Laurel. Now, I, I have the same feeling as I think you do about Charlie Chaplin in that he's somebody to be admired rather than actually yeah. loved. But Stan Laurel and Laurel and Hardy, I, I, I similarly to yourself, you know, grew up watching them on the um, TV of a, of a Saturday morning. Tell us something about your abiding love of Laurel and Hardy. Well, again, as with Charlie Chaplin, it goes back to childhood. And this is one of the things I do talk about, that in a sense, you know, we talk about declaring privilege. My privilege is to have grown up when I did at a time when, you know, there were only like, say, three television channels. And you collided with decades of decades of, you know, British comedy. So the first thing that I would have watched, you know, in about 1971, there was a programme Golden Silence hosted by Michael Benteen. And, you know, you came into contact with Charlie Chaplin there. And Charlie Chaplin shorts were actually sort of screened readily on mainstream TV. And of course, Laurel and Hardy were a permanent fixture. Never did it occur to me that one day, that they, and I just thought that they, they, you know, as icons, they were absolutely permanently kind of, you know, in, you know, it, it, they had a permanent inscribed in the firmament. But that's not actually the case. And of course, when was Charlie Chaplin last on TV? When when Laurel and Hardy haven't been on mainstream TV in nearly twenty years? Um, I just never imagined that would be the case. And so I think that was one reason why I really wanted to kind of highlight them because kids these days, I mean, are living in a world in which everything was about. Everything's about five or six weeks old, you know, if they watch it on mainstream TV. There's just, there isn't that kind of great sort of historical hinterland of comedy that you yourself are probably accustomed to growing up, and I certainly was. So I think I just want to kind of lay some stress, you know, obviously I do critique Charles Chaplin in, in some ways, but I mean, clearly an absolutely towering figure. As you say, they both had to kind of, they were both there essentially at the kind of the birth of Hollywood, and they, they achieved a kind of global fame. Clearly, you know, obviously a lot of their training, whatever, in musical came to bear on that, you know, so, you know, that. But there were also, especially with Charlie Chaplin, you know, there's a sense of, like, futurism about him, you know, and he was considered, you know, I think he's almost like he's like some sort of first man, as it were, of comedy. I find that absolutely fascinating about him. And But as you say, more admirable than hilarious quite a lot of the time. I mean, the velocity, the ballet, the kind of set, you know, kind of breathtaking, whatever. But um, 
I don't think he, that, that the tram is an easy character to love in the way that, say, Stan Laurel or Oliver Hardy. Um, you know, there's the, it, it, whenever he smiles, it's got this horrible little obsequious little smile. And I just, you can't quite sort of take to him. He can sometimes actually be, some of his behaviour is almost like kind of bullying sometimes to kind of other workers and things like that, you know, on the screen. You know, it doesn't sort of, it doesn't seem to have necessarily, I mean, I mean, there is a great, sometimes there's just a lack of compassion in his in his stuff, although there's an immense amount of sentimentality and quite effective, you know, I suppose, you know, some of the, in, in absolute city lights or whatever. But obviously an absolutely fascinating cultural phenomenon who was hugely regarded in his day. I mean, he was regarded as, you know, he was revered by people like Hockett or whatever. And I think it kind of all that went to his head a little bit. So when Charlie Chaplin did his, his autobiography in the mouth, I think it was like 1964, he doesn't mention any of his contemporaries. He doesn't mention any of the other silent comedians, anybody from, he doesn't mention Stan Laurel, his best, you know, his good mate at one point. He doesn't mention Harry Langdon or Buster Keaton or anything like that. You know, he tends to see himself as essentially on a par with people like Gandhi. Um, so, you know, I think he did develop a, a, quite a sense of self-importance. And there's also sort of a sort of problematic aspect with knowledge happens to some of the aspects of his domestic life. But um, um, but I'll talk about that. But yeah, but, but Stan Laurel, and obviously it's, it's Laurel and Hardy. Stan Laurel couldn't, unlike Chaplin, have operated successfully alone. And, you know, and in a sense, Laurel and Hardy, it's like Stan, you know, Stan Laurel is Paul, Paul Simon to Oliver Hardy's Art Garfunkel, you might say, in some respects, although perhaps it's a bit even more equal than that, really. And I think that personally, I think that Oliver Hardy is the funniest man all time um, for myself. But obviously, he's kind of created in part by Stan Laurel. But there is a sort of there's an empathy, there's a sympathy, there's a sort of a wonderful slowness, actually, a pace about um, the Laurel and Hardy shorts. Um, you know, as if they are the kind of the last two in, you know, the last two in the line of humanity, really. They are the sort of the lowest, the, the second and the lowest of the low, you know, the second lowest and the lowest of the low, I should say. And, you know, when Oliver sort of delivers, or even Stan himself, you know, when you get into these kind of ridiculous sort of trap balls or whatever, when they deliver these kind of utterly pained, exasperated stares, you know, that makes it's like they kind of connect so well, you know, down the centuries and they think, you know, you poor bloke. So, I mean, I, as, as a kid, I just had such, um, you know, made, made such, a, I think, and also I think that, you know, kids really relate to stuff like this. I mean, I think they are, they are kids comedians, you know, and, you know, and it's actually a sort of a shame that, unfortunately, a lot of the things that I kind of find sort of warming about them, these the shorts, like the kind of the fact that you've always got that kind of crackle going on in the background, which is, you know, the sort of the soundtrack, you know, the day with all the scratchiness or whatever. Unfortunately, I tried to play this uh, on Hardy shorts to um, one of my nephews, and he just said, what is this? Because you know, he couldn't get over, you know. I mean, it was easy for us, you know, my, my generation to get past you know, the black and whiteness of it, the scratchings of it all. I mean, to me, it actually adds a sort of aesthetic dimension. But, you know, for kids today, it's almost like trying to get them to understand why Shakespeare's funny or something like that, or certainly in the particular innocence. Although, I think if you go along to cinemas where they do these kind of special screenings, then I think kids do sort of click into, they do get it, they do go and get carried along with the kind of the general merriment. But, you know, it's just really part, part of the book is, is actually about attempting to sort of get a preservation order on things like Charlie Chaplin and Laurel Hardy, which is something I never expected to have to, anyone should have to do. You describe Chaplin as the first comedian, or certainly the first comedian of the 20th mm. century, a sort of harbinger of modernity. Um, mm. And then I just want to leap us quite a bit forward up to the, and, and conflate your sort of couple of chapters on the 50s and 60s, where there is a number of figures that comedy nowadays, like comedy being made now, is unimaginable without obviously Monty Python mm. being one, Peter Cook being another. Yeah. 
But another mm. one of these is um, Spike Milligan, who is described in the book as the Picasso of comedy. Yeah. But I wondered if maybe we should describe him as in this context as the ABBA of comedy as you um you don't particularly like him and I think some people accept it as your description. Yeah. Well put I, I have a lot of problems with um with the Spike Milligan, definitely. And I had to sit through well, a fair a fair few clips and and just some of it was just jaw droppingly unfunny so far as I was concerned. And awful and called racist and and, and, and smug and self-satisfied. You know, he just seemed to you know he had a very high opinion of his own genius. I don't think he's merited by jokes like contraceptives should be used on every conceivable occasion. Yeah, you know, that's just like, yeah. Um, that might have made that Guardian list of like 10 best jokes at the fringe this year. <laughs> it, it, it's, it's, um, yeah, I, I think this is the problem quite often. The innovators are quite often, because they're sort of out on the edge, they can subsequently be more problematic than some of the more mainstream type stuff. I mean, with Spike Milligan clearly did these things like, curry and chips he had an obsession with race that you see in his correspondence and not to say necessarily he was a racist exactly he was very anti-national front but he did seem to kind of preoccupy him in ways that i think are a little bit intellectually unhealthy let's say and yet for all that and um, for all the possible unpleasantnesses of him as a character or whatever and all, all his abilities i mean he, he he was a genius look i mean i'd say picasso pointedly because picasso is problematic in all kinds of ways but he is a genius, you know, Picasso is the kind of inaugurator of contemporary art, and Spike Milligan is the inaugurator of contemporary comedy. And, you know, and he just sort of, you know, that, that sort of pre-war or wartime consensus of what constituted acceptable comedy, which was absolute dross, um, certainly by today's standards, and certainly by Spike Milligan's standards, and B, the whole idea of, like, the hierarchy and deference to authority and the military and people like that. He blows all of that apart. And, you know, and so since, you know, like people have said, you know, all modern comedy owes its origin to, to Spike Milligan. I think there's a, there's a great deal in that. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to David Stubbs, and we're talking about his new book, Different Times, A History of British Comedy. And David, I want to spend a little time in various ways in the 1970s now. Mm. And you talk at various points about ways in which Britishness or Englishness normally more typically is is represented in comedy there's a great chapter talking about the representation of britishness in the ealing comedies for instance mm. but i want to talk here about something i also don't understand which is the perpetual popularity of dad's army and how that reflects britishness oh you're not you're not a fan <laughs> i've never really understood dad's army no okay all right i mean oh, that's fair enough yeah i mean you know it's not it's not for everybody but for me I mean, one of the things about Dad's Army is that, unlike a lot of comedies, and certainly a lot of comedies of the 1970s, it's been on pretty much permanently. It ended in 1977, and it's been broadcast perpetually ever since. I think one of the reasons for that is the fact that it's kind of period costume. Um, you know, it's from the 1940s. And so, unlike when you look at an old Lightly Lads episode or Good Life, you just, unfortunately, your attention is taken away by the kind of the gaudy kitchen decor or the flares or whatever and things like that, you know, are all a bit too distracting, really. But I think it's not just that. I mean, for me, it is the quality of, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's the quality of the characters, you know, especially perhaps, you know, like the relationship between Arthur Lowe and John Lee Mizura at the century, but the kind of, the, you know, the platoon, you know, and all their kind of sort of, sort of flippancy and um, idiosyncrasy, whatever. And it's odd, really, because I think, you know, a lot of Dad's Army was used quite often times, you know, people didn't vote Dad's Army during the Brexit discussions quite often. But I think that it's a little bit wiser and more complex than that. It isn't just a kind of sort of banal celebration of true British spunk or whatever, or character under this island race standing alone. I mean, I think all, you know, I think that the thing about Dad's Army is what's important is that they are, that in moments of crisis, you know, even a sort of bumbling nitwit like Arthur Lowe shows real courage. And I think that's very, very important that that aspect was always there. However, I think there's a lot of wisdom. I mean, the constant refrain of John Lee Missouri, do you think that's wise? Uh, there's a lot of wisdom at work. And I think part of that is the perspective of the creators. Jimmy Perry, it's fascinating, again, talking about Brexit, back in, I suppose, 10, 15 years ago, this probably was, he was interviewed and he was actually making a big point about how he wished that, he really hoped that young people would take a big interest in Europe and the European Union because he'd lived through the war and he understood what, like, European disunity could potentially really mean. And so, you know, I think mean, it's quite odd if, like, Brexiteers sort of imagine that Dad's Army is their kind of, you know, their, their spiritual comedy. Then that's not, that wasn't the intention of at least one of his co-creators at all. I just wanted to talk in general about depictions of race and perhaps more specifically just foreigners in general mm. in the comedy of the 1970s. Yeah. I mean, obviously, I suppose one of the breakthrough comedies in this respect was supposedly sort of Death of Du Part because it's, you know, it lampoons a racist, um, Alf Garner, who's talking about, you know, bloody C-word, this, et cetera, et cetera. And I think the unfortunate thing about that is, A, they weren't really, they weren't really kind of black characters featured as such. It was just really just this white bloke ranting, surrounded by his white family, telling him to shut up or whatever. There were very, very few black faces in, in, in the actual series, one or two extras or whatever, or Kenny Lynch makes an appearance on in one particular episode. So as it were, answer back to him. Um, secondly, I think that like the audience, far from, they weren't laughing at this ignorant racist fool. They were laughing cathartically at this word being kind of screamed now the screen. You know, this word he was not used in polite society. And so I think that some of the kind of the good intentions of Johnny Spate, the creator, rather backfired. I think. And 
Ronald Mitchell said, you know, that people would come up to him in the street and they'd say, well said, Al, well said. And he said, don't you be such a fool. You know, yeah, that it's not working then. Now, if these people are coming up to him saying, well said, then clearly something's going wrong. You then get things like, I suppose, another sentence. And again, I guess it was probably considered pretty well-meaning, um, was love thy neighbour, um, in which you've got a kind of, you've got a white traditional Labour voting bloke and then the black West Indian couple move in next door. And... And again, I mean, again, you've got this problem of like, you know, he's using the word kind of, you know, the N word, Samba, the whole time. It's just this avalanche of racism, you know, that, that, that you know, Eddie, Eddie's pouring on, on this guy played by Rudolph Walker. And once again, you do get the feeling that um, the people watching this, you know, although Eddie is meant to be kind of a fool and unsympathetic and you're not supposed to kind of agree with him, that people were nonetheless getting off on this kind of sort of almost like, as far as some of them consider this joyful cascade of racist epithets, you know. Very, very problematic in that respect. Also, the idea that, like, a black character could only be on screen in order for their blackness to be referenced, and quite often the idea that... And that's even worse with Love Thy Neighbour was when it featured, like, Pakistani characters, and then they, they were just really, really, really badly treated in that series. And it was the idea that there was something inherently comic about being Asian that was being exploited. It was awful stuff. And yet, at the time, there were people who were watching that, like people in this country, um, you know, people of colour in this country... Um, you know, who who felt at least included. Well, I felt okay. At least we're on TV, and that's that was kind of a start, as far as people concerned. I mean, really, that is the one redeeming feature, and it's a kind of inadvertent one, really, that that, that Love Thy Neighbor has. Similar thing with Mind Your Language, you know, which is you know, the guy who's in which um, you know there's various uh, nationalities coming over to sort of learn English, and somehow or other, I mean, this is the sort of ridiculous thing. The idea that they, their English isn't very good is somehow conflated with the idea that they're kind of obtuse in some way. You know, not, not knowing English very well is because you're a bit thick. I mean, coming from a nation of monoglots like the English, you don't know a word, generally don't know a word of other languages. That really, really is a bit rich. But again, a lot of people that were watching that, you know, from, from other parts of the world that are settling in this country, at least felt included, even when they were being kind of stereotyped and lampooned in this way. So it's, it's very curious, and there's a sort of slow process whereby black characters just get agency and are simply, you know, are depicted, you know, just living their lives, really, in, you know, obviously not necessarily in the most naturalistic way almost, but at least not, you know, in not having to be kind of referenced all the time, they're black, and isn't this funny? And obviously, up until this point, which is now, let's say, the uh, the late 1970s, we're obviously edging closer and closer mm. to a revolution in comedy that we're going to talk about. Yeah. But up to this point, tell us something about what the involvement of women in comedy has been. Well, again, it was quite often peripheral, and again, <laughs> objectified. I mean, you had to, you know, you did actually have pretty strong characters. Oddly enough, I mean, even in like Carry On films, you know, your Hattie Jates and Joan Sims would say, "Well, actually, we able to play." You know, they weren't. You know, they sometimes would portray the sex staff or whatever. But you know, they, they, they actually held their own reasonably well. And then you had like, you know, people like Hilda Baker or whatever, who was very popular or whatever, even in <laughs> the sort of rather creepy sitcoms. It was just sort of fleeting moments, really, in which like women were um, you know, just like depicted as dolly birds or whatever, you know, and quite peripheral, you know, like chasing Benny Hill around or, or, or whatever. There, were, you know, there, were, there was a lot of that on screen. There were actually a lot of like women working well in comedy, actually, doing good work and being allowed to do good work. I mean, it's like Marty Kane, who's kind of forgotten now really and there's not really much of her stuff up on online really but she was you know she she, she was a very familiar performer who of course came up through you know a scene which was like deeply sexist and so therefore really really had to have strength of character and really really had to have a, a wits about her 
I mean, very sadly, she died aged about, I think she was about 50 or something like that. I can really imagine having a kind of post-comic career in something like Coronation Street. And actually, Coronation Street should get an honorary mention, really, because Coronation Street from the start, created by um, Tony Warren or whatever, and that kind of sort of sensibility that courses all the way through Coronation Street. And quite often, Coronation Street was the funniest show on ITV, bar none. And of course, it had tremendous, um, strong female characters, you know, you've got to meet Town or Bette Lynch or whatever, Hilda Ogden, even like that, who actually, you know, there were so creations, but there were kind of great comic creations as well. So there was a lot of like, there was actually a fair amount of strong female representation in British comedy. And then, of course, you know, they go right back, you've got people like Joyce Grenville, you know, who's an absolute genius. But, um, but, you know, obviously still a great deal of sexism. And I suppose something like Carol Cleveland, I think, in the multi-Python setup, you know, the, the fact that, you know, her, the sort of peripheral roles that she was like, forced to play, you know, were quite often a little bit unfortunate. I mean, you know, she stuck with it. But um, I think Marco Palin did apologise, said, look, we just can't write roles for women. You know, we don't know anything about women. And of course, once you get more kind of women writers coming through, I mean, oh, I don't know, I always find Carla Lane a little bit thin comedically, but at least, you know, but she was, you know, she was a script writer and at least, you know, she was kind of bringing women through things like the Liver Birds or whatever. And that was an important step forward so that comedy and sitcom isn't just constantly about the predicament of white males, you know, well, we've all got predicaments, you know. This is also the the high watermark, I guess, of the sort of, you know, BBC One Saturday Night Light Entertainment comedy um there's a part of the chapter on the 70s where you talk about these people you Morecambe and wise les dawson's and tommy cooper's again this feels like something that i mean while we have your you know i don't know who your anton dex or your paddy mcginnis is now does not in any way sort of replicate these giants that existed at this point tell us something about, yeah. about the the death of light entertainment yeah but i mean you know, obviously part of it was the fact that, like, you, you did have a captive audience, there were far fewer other alternative distractions then. So in fairness, you know, the fact that, say, Steptoe and Son got 20 million viewers in 1970, um, I think the biggest, <laughs> the, the, the show with the most viewers that year was Miss World, apparently. So, yeah, they had different times. It doesn't necessarily mean that they were that much superior or whatever. You know, you did have a kind of captive audience. The TV was on in households the whole time. I watched absolutely everything. The only time he turned his TV off was when it was turned off for you in a minor strike or something, you know, it really was like that. I mean, you know, and I think that that's one of the reasons why the 70s is such a huge decade, really, in comedy, because there was a great deal of it and everybody was watching it, you know, and really, then, you know, that gradually sort of declines, obviously, in subsequent decades. And it's interesting, yeah, you mentioned people like Morgan Wise and there's Tommy Cooper, and quite often in these cases, these weren't sort of like, um, you know, these weren't young men. These have been people who've been sort of honing their trades since the end of the war pretty much, you know, and were just really coming into their own in the 1970s, you know, and so, you know, they had a very different, you know, their sort of the background and you know, that was much more kind of, you know, music hall, they were much more kind of like experience and hone, but, you know, it often took them quite a long time, you know, to get to that particular peak. And so then we have the um, so-called alternative comedy, which, as you describe in the book, is a bit of a sort of cringy name for yeah. everything that happened and sort of parallel with the rise that was called at that time political correctness. And it's really interesting to now contrast. We'll obviously talk, tell us something about the alternative comedy revolution, but it's very interesting to sort of contrast that with what's happening right now, 30 years later, 40 years later, maybe, with the fuss about, you know, so-called woke comedy. 
why has this not gone away? I guess we should talk about first of all. Yeah, why has it come I, back? I, I, why has it come back? Well, it's come back as a kind of debate, really. I think it's people, especially on the sort of tourist side or whatever, just getting kind of disproportionately enraged by problems that are kind of the absolute very least of our problems in this world. And I think it's sort of like people take gross offence if, for instance, you know, they want to watch, say, I don't know, a faulty towers or a porridge, you know, fine, fine, fine comedies indeed, I should say. But even with Dad's armor, there's perhaps just a little warning at the beginning, just saying that, like, some of the language in this might, you know, might, you might not consider, you might consider a little bit offensive. So that's all you get. Just that is enough to sort of send him into a kind of, like, fit of apoplexy. It's, you know, it's a ridiculous and absurd overreaction. The drift, you know, I do sort of quite pointedly sort of start saying how political correctness saved British comedy, because I sort of agree with that. And I think it just has to be said out loud and people shouldn't be too apologetic about things like that. The reason for, I mean, you know, yeah, yeah, you mentioned um, alternative comedy. So that's the kind of the messy beginnings of it. And it is in parallel to punk. Like I say, if punk had been called alternative rock, we'd probably all still be wearing flares to this day. But uh, that's another question. But essentially, it was there as a similar sort of mission to punk really, to sort of drive out the old dinosaurs to sort of invert all the hoary old cliches or whatever, and just to kind of like clear the ground for something new. And I think that the great thing about that, that comedy as it developed, the best comedy in that kind of, you know, post the ni- late 1970s, is that, you know, you had to therefore do better. You had to think harder. You know, you had all these cliches, you know, like you know, every time a sort of a Chinese or Japanese person comes on screen, a gong sounds, or every time Hattie Jakes walks down, you know, award in a carry-on film, a bassoon strikes up. And so you don't do these things anymore. It's cliche, it's rubbish, it's embarrassing. We can do a lot better. You can think about life the way it's actually lived and who is actually living it. It can be more inclusive, it can be richer. And that's a kind of great scene, you know, that, that, and that creates kind of a richer and a better comedy. You know, the idea that, like, that, you know, this idea of like, woke comedy, it's, it's, it's a killjoy thing. It's designed to kind of sort of humorlessly obliterate the kind of saucy seaside spirit of, you know, British comedy traditionally. I mean, that's just rubbish. You know, what you, you know, if you look at the things that, like, political correctness is getting rid of, these are really horrible, nasty, toxic, evil things that you would just not want, you know, rape jokes, um, vicious, you know, uh, vicious racist jokes or whatever, just... Just sexism that is just in, in, that will just actually embarrass um, anybody in a younger generation now. It's just like you know, the, you know, the idea of like oh, you can't, you have to laugh, no, you're not supposed to laugh at the thing. Nobody was even think of laughing at some of the rubbish that we were kind of served up, on, you know, on a mainstream basis forty odd years ago. It's it's unbroadcast un- with a lot of it. So yeah, so basically, as a result of that, I think you had a kind of a golden age, like in the nineties, the kind of great flowering of that, with people having to think harder to do better. It was kind of more naturalistic. It was more imaginative. Everything from Vic and Bob to the royal family, you know, things like that. And actually, subsequently, the office, you know, and all the kind of naturalism and nuance in that. And I think that was a consequence of political correctness. And I mean, obviously, another thing, you know, people say, oh, oh, oh we can't say anything these days. And he said, like, take the first question, what are these things that you want to say? And B, why do you want to say them? You know, there's always a bit of coyness about that, really. No, you, no one truly wants to return to some of the kind of the terrible stuff that was like, served up every single week, you know, in, in living rooms up and down the country to millions and millions of people. And I do believe that it had a kind of, it, it did it did kind of infect the culture negatively. So I've been talking to David Stubbs. We've been talking about his new book, Different Times, A History of British Comedy, which is out now in the UK from Faber. David, thank you so much for taking the time to speak to me. Well, not at all. Thanks for having me on. Great pleasure. Thanks. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. 
The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. Protect your dream home with American Family Insurance. And you can weather any storm. You'll also save up to 25% by bundling home, auto, and life. American Family Insurance. Get a quote. Find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Discounts may not apply to all coverages on an auto or home policy. Discounts do not apply to life insurance policies. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating companies, American Family Life Insurance Company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.